At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we kick off the new year, we invite you to tune into our current series, The Forgotten Virtue, Learning to Love Again, where we'll discover how God defines love, Christ personifies love, and the Spirit empowers us to love one another. Together, we'll experience healing and hope in the love God designed for us, a love we carry through every season of life. Good morning, church. Happy New Year. It is a pleasure and a delight to be here this morning with you. I don't know if you know this, but um, people, especially executives, spend millions of dollars to bring in professional coaches to help them improve themselves. You guys realize that, right? To, to better themselves, to, to improve their game. In fact, there are professional branding coaches that you can pay lots of money for, and essentially they put you through workshops, they put you through these brainstorming activities, and they ask you just one question. What do you want to be known for? What do you want to be known for? And so these executives go through the, this huge process of weeks of, of reading and, and workshops and, and, and thinking through, what is it they want to be known for? So the question actually, maybe for free this morning to all of you is, what do you want to be known for? What is it that the world should know about the truth is, whether we like it or not, we are going to be known for something. True? We're going to be known for something. What is it we want to be known for? You want to be known for how talented you are? How well you sing? How lucky you are? You want to be known as that guy? You know, that guy? Well, what do you want to be known for? Well, we're going to look at that in just a minute. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. We're going to continue in our message series as as C.T. told us, uh, this, this book written by the Apostle of Love, of the Apostle John, and he writes to us about a forgotten virtue. You know, we come into this new year, and, and many of us, we come into this year uh, forgetting how to love. You know, maybe we're angry, maybe we're resentful, maybe there's bitterness in us, all because of the variety of different reasons. I mean, there's a host of reasons to, to be angry, and maybe we're here at the beginning of this new year and we realize, gosh, I, I've, I'm just an angry person. I'm just a bitter person. <clears throat> and yet the Bible says that we as children of God, if we claim to know God as our father, <clears throat> and as CT reminded us, the central virtue that should define us as a Christian is love. In fact, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 said, you can check all the spiritual boxes and do all the spiritual things, but if you do not have love, he says you are what? You all went back to sleep. Let's try that again. I'll say it slower. If you check all the spiritual boxes and you can do all the spiritual things, but if you don't have love, you are what? Nothing. You make a lot of noise. You're a sounding gong, a clanging cymbal, but in effect, you are nothing. The single important virtue of the Christian life as defined by the word of God is that we as children of God are to be defined by love. By love. And so we're going to look at this book, this letter written by the Apostle John. And our prayer as we go through this message series is that we as a, as a church, and we as a people of God will learn to love again. Learn to love again. In fact, the key theme of this letter is found in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13, where John writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. 
And we looked at that last week. How can we know that we know that we have eternal life? How can we know that we know that we are a Christian? How can we know that we know that we are in a relationship with God? And the answer was, if we obey his commandments and we love one another. It's as simple as that. That was the message. If you weren't here last week, you just got it. Love one another, obey God's word. This week, we're going to look at verses 12 through 17. And today, we're going to find that God rejects the love the world embraces. God rejects the love that the world embraces. This passage is broken up into two sections, and we're going to look at them separately. Verses 12 to 14, the Apostle John gives us some encouragement. He gives us some some truths about who we are. And he does that because that is necessary and essential that we understand that truth in order to apply the challenge that he's going to give us in verses 15 to 17. All right? So we're going to look at that. And and the central question that John is going to raise in this passage is this. If we say that God is our Father and heaven is our home, then why do we put our love and affection into a world that is in direct opposition to God? And that's the question we're going to try to wrestle with as we look at two truths from this passage that help us answer that question. And the first truth that we find in verses 12 to 17 is that we must embrace who we are in Jesus. We must embrace who we are in Jesus. John writes, starting in verse number 12, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So John takes a break from the instructions that he's been giving. The test that he gave us last week to help us understand how we can know that we are a child of God. He takes a break from giving us more instruction, and he spends these verses giving us encouragement. Encouragement that is much needed in these verses. Now, I don't know if you noticed this, but he speaks to three different groups of people. He says, he, or he writes to little children, fathers, and young men. Commentators across the board are confused as to why John did it this way. Is John talking to three different groups of people in the church? Possibly. But most likely, it's not an age-based discussion. This is not about age. It's perhaps better to understand this as spiritual maturity, that we have people in our church at all different levels of spiritual maturity. That's perhaps what the apostle John is talking about. And so some of the commentators think these are three different maturity levels in Christ. I personally don't like that. I'll just tell you right now, you're going to get the Abe Philip version this morning. Some other commentators believe that the phrase little children or children refers to the whole church. Why? And I believe that that's perhaps better to take that as referring to the whole church. Because in the rest of the letter, John uses it that way. John, whenever he says little children or children in the rest of the letter, he's always addressing the whole church. So why would it be different here? So if you assume that for a minute, let's assume that we're right, then he's talking to two different groups of people, fathers and young men. Ladies, that doesn't exclude you. What John is doing, I believe, is he's using a stylistic approach, perhaps writing in a song or writing in a poem format to 
communicates some truth to us because everything he tells us in these verses applies to everybody. Everybody who is a child of God, these truths apply. You with me? These truths apply. So let's look at them. There are three truths here in these three verses. The first is, as we learn to embrace who we are in Jesus, is that in Jesus we are forgiven for the sake of his name. We are forgiven for the sake of his name. Literally, it says your sins have been forgiven you. You realize that our sins, past, present, and future, they're all forgiven. They've all been paid for. God has wiped them clean. As far as the east is from the west, so has he removed our transgressions from us. It's a really good place for an amen. Thank you. If CT doesn't do this for, with you folks, and I know I don't come here often enough, audience participation is part of my message, all right? So we're going to pause and have you respond. I just give you an advertisement for that, all right? How far is east from the west? It's forever. It's gone. You know, my dad used to say when he was a preacher, he said, God would put our sins in the deepest ocean and put up a sign that says, no fishing. God never brings it up. God never brings it up. You never have to worry where God sits up in heaven and goes, I know what you did yesterday. No, no. God never remembers those sins anymore. They've been forgiven. Why? Jesus came. He died on the cross. He paid every sin. Every penalty for every sin was paid on the cross by Jesus Christ. Amen? Praise God. By the way, notice in these verses why our sins are forgiven. The sins are forgiven because of his name's sake. It's not because of us. It's because of his name's sake. You realize in the Bible, people didn't give names because they felt like it. It's not like today where you go, oh, I wonder, I'll, give a, I'll, I'll just randomly pick a number or, or name or something. No, in the Bible, when they gave a name, it encapsulated the person, his character, her nature. It's all in the name. How do I know that? You know the name Jacob. What does the name Jacob mean, church? Deceiver. He's a deceiver, and that's exactly who he was. He deceived his father. He deceived his father-in-law. He was deceiving everybody until God met him and changed his name. You see, a name encapsulates everything about that person. And so when God says to you and me, you are forgiven, it's his name that's at stake. It's his name, it's his reputation, it's his character that's involved in telling you, you are forgiven. Praise God that our sins have been forgiven. In fact, Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25, God says, I I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Folks, we can trust in the nature, the character, the name of God. It's a guarantee if you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ that your sins have been forgiven because of the sake of his name. Amen? The second way we can embrace our identity in Jesus Christ not only have our sins been forgiven, but we can know God. We can know God the Father and we can know God the Son. That's what he says at the beginning of verse 13 and the beginning of verse 14. And we talked about this idea of knowing. At least I hope you talked about this idea of knowing last week. Knowing, when we think of knowing, we often think about the head knowledge, right? We, we have a bunch of intellectual knowledge about stuff. We all went to school, so we all know about math. 
Some of us more than others. It's a given, right? We, we kind of know something about math. But that's not the kind of knowledge he's talking about. The knowledge he's talking about includes head knowledge, but more importantly, that head knowledge gets married with heart experience. Some of you, you know me. I'm a preacher. That's as far as you know. Some of you know a little bit more about me. You know I'm an engineer. I work for Ford Motor Company. Some of you know a little bit more about me. You know that I have a, I'm married to my wife with three children. I, I live in Rochester Hills. You, you guys know more about me. But you know who knows the most about me? My wife. She's out there. Don't go ask her. Go with what you know. But see, her knowledge is not just an intellectual knowledge. It has a heart component to it. It has experience coupled with it. So when John says, no, God, it means a head knowledge coupled with heart experience. The more you live in Jesus Christ, the more you experience the love and goodness of a great God, right? That's why the psalmist says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Every day you walk with him, every day that you live in this world with him, you get to taste and see how good God is. That's what he means by knowing God. By the way, it's not just knowing God. He says, knowing the one who was from the beginning. You know, that's a reference to Jesus. How do I know that? Because John, when he wrote his, his gospel, chapter 1 and verse 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He's talking about Jesus. In fact, the Apostle Paul says something very similar in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16. Paul writes, for, him, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He is the beginning. In fact, John in Revelation writes, he is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. We get to know him. What a privilege that when we come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, we get to know and experience God. Praise God for his goodness. Knowing the one who was from the beginning means knowing the designer, the architect, the engineer, the one who conceived us in the first place and knows the purposes that he intends to work out in and through us. Praise God. Not only are our sins forgiven, not only can we know God, but thirdly, in Jesus, we can be an overcomer. Not just become an overcomer, we are overcomers. You realize that the Christian life is not an easy walk in the park? You guys know that, right? It's a battle. It's a battle. Every day we live in this world, it is a battle. And yet, John tells us we are overcomers. Why? Because the war has been won. You guys realize that, right? The cross defeated sin and death and the grave. We no longer have to fear those things. Jesus has already won the war. But there's still a battle going on. And John looks at us and looks at his church and he says, you guys are overcomers. Stand in the truth. Stand in the identity you have in Christ and you will be overcomers. By the way, we're not just overcomers by ourselves. He says we're overcomers <clears throat> because we have God's word in our heart. Because the word of God abides in us. How many of you have started reading God's word fresh this year? 
Not a resolution, just a commitment. We don't like the word resolution, right? Some of you, maybe none of you. Download a Bible app. Bible Project is a great one. version has lots of options to read the Bible. If you haven't started, start today. It's only 10 days. You're okay. It's all right. You could start today and still catch up by the end of the year. Trust me, I've tried it. I know it can be done. The reason things happen in our lives that we can't explain and why we make a mess of our own life is because we don't read God's manual for our life. You realize it's all in here, right? Most people I talk to, when they make a mess of their life, I ask one question. When's the last time you read your, the Bible? And then they hang their head. Why? God's given it to you. It's right here. Just pick it up and read. 5, 10, 20 minutes, whatever time you have. Why not spend a few minutes? You're an overcomer when the word of God abides in you. Psalm 119, your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. There's the secret answer. The sauce, the secret sauce is hiding God's word in our heart. We are overcomers. Stand in the victory that God has already won for us. Stand in his word. Folks, the Apostle John is giving us a pep talk. You know, sometimes we need one of those pep talks, don't we? We need some of that shot of encouragement in the arm because this, this life gets long. We get disgruntled. We get discouraged. And the Apostle John is telling us, you have to embrace your identity in Jesus Christ. You are forgiven. You know the Father. You are an overcomer. So stand in that truth because that's important when we get to truth number two. What's truth number two? Verses 15 to 17 tell us that we have to reject what the world has to offer. We have to reject what the world has to offer. John writes in verse 15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. For anyone, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let me just define love for a minute, the way John is using it in this context. Love means a commitment of time and resources. A commitment of time and resources. There's a story, an old story that comes from down south where <clears throat> there was a, a fight between a husband and a wife where the, where the wife yelling at the husband, upset with him because he won't tell her, I love you. To which he says, woman, I told you I loved you the day I married you. I'll let you know if I change my mind. Ladies, spouses, does that work? No, no, it doesn't work, does it? Because our spouses want to hear what? I love you. But is just the words enough? And everybody said, no. It's not enough. Why? Because the words, I love you, have to be coupled with a commitment of time and resources. If I don't give my wife time and resources that go with the phrase, I love you, then the words have no meaning. You get what I'm saying? Maybe some of you need to look at your spouse and tell them I love you. I'll look in my notes for a minute. Why don't you go ahead and do that? Just look at them and say, I love you. It's all right. We're in church. God's watching. 
So when John says not to love the world, he means there are some things we need to reject. See, the day I said yes to my wife, I immediately said no to everybody else. Immediately. Because my time and my commitment are to her and not to any other person. She gets my love. She gets my time. That doesn't mean I don't work. That doesn't mean I don't have phone calls. I don't have other things to do. But when it comes to loving and committing my time and resources, she's the one that gets the most. So when John says, say no to the world, do not love the world, he's saying don't invest your time and your resources here. All right, you with me? That's what he means. And so I know what you're thinking. John, didn't you just say God loves the world? That God loves the people? That God has told us and John has told us to love our brothers and sisters and love our enemies and and love all and just love, love, love? Isn't that what your word says? Well, yes, that's true. God does love the world. That's why Jesus Christ came. John did just tell us last week that we are to love one another. That's all true. But the reason we have that question in our mind is because we don't understand the word world. There are three ways that the scripture uses that word. It can refer to the planet, as in the planet Earth. It can also refer to the people on the planet. That's John 3.16, for God so loved the, not the planet, but the people in the pla- on the planet, right? They're us. So it can refer to people. The third way that it's used in scripture is to refer to the world system, a system that is in direct opposition to God. And that's the way it's used here. It's intended to tell us as children of God that if we love God, then we have to say no to this system of the world that is in direct rebellion against God. Because you and I know that this world is under the influence of the evil one, right? And that this world is trying to distract us and tempt us away from our love of God so that we can put our our attention, our time, our commitment in this world. That's what the world is trying to do. And so the Apostle John in verses 15 to 17 tell us, do not love the world. In verse 15, John tells us that we cannot love both the world and God at the same time. We can't have both. It's an either-or statement. Either you will love the one and hate the other or vice versa. You cannot love both. Let me explain that to you. <clears throat> this is an example. This is a figment of my imagination. This is, there's no reality to what I'm about to share. You'll understand why I had to give that clarification. If I went to my wife and I said to her, honey, I love you. I love you very much. But, but there's this other woman. If I'm still breathing at that point, <laughs> right? You're with me. And I tell her, I really, really love you, but I'm going I'm to spend 60% of my time with you and 40% of my time with her. Is that okay with you? Is that going to go over well? Some of you aren't sure. <laughs> Don't try this at home. That's why I said it's, it's just an illustration. It's not real. How does that work? It doesn't work. It's her and her only, or it's not. I cannot have it both ways, can I? Now here comes the rub, ready? When you tell God I love you, how much time did you spend this last week with him? 
How much time and resources did we as a people of God commit to him when we said, Lord, I love you? Well, folks, it's hard. I'm not trying to guilt trip you. I'm just letting you know what God beat me over the head with. It hurt when I got to that verse because I realized there's a lot of time in my commitment that I'm not giving to God, that I'm just going through my day ignoring God. And yeah, I've got my time in the morning in devotions and I got my time in the evening with devotions and some other stuff and I've got some books to read. Yes, it's all good. But throughout the day, do I spend any time thinking about him. Oh, I was convicted. It tore me apart. And so somewhere in the middle of this last week, I started to commit to intentionally thinking about God. In every meeting I go to, just a minute before, I close my eyes and I just pray, God, I'm about to get into this meeting. I don't know how I can glorify you in this. Give me wisdom May I find opportunities to glorify you. And you know what? God answers. It's amazing what happens when you pray. God answers. All of a sudden, when you start giving him glory and you start to live up to loving him as he is intended to be loved, all of a sudden, things happen in your life where he starts directing conversations towards him out of nowhere. Imagine that, huh? Try that at home. See what happens this next week. Where it's not just a five minute and out the door we go kind of thing. Where we intentionally think about this one. This God who loved us. And when we tell him I love you, well show it. Show it with a commitment of time and resources. In verse number 16, John goes on to tell us that what this world offers us doesn't satisfy He says in verse 16, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from this world. That's what the world is trying to tempt you into. To make you think if you just had that thing. Talking in the first service, and the guy said, My neighbor has a 40-foot pusher. I was looking at that till my wife elbowed me right about there. What is that thing that's going to satisfy you? This world would like to tell you that you must have it by the way there are three categories three ways that it gets to distract you notice it's the desires of the flesh it's a desire of doing things that make you feel good it's taking the things that God has given for our good and abusing it and overindulging in it and doing things outside of the context in which God said it was to be used it's the slogan that says if it feels good do it desires of the flesh The second category you find is the desires of the eyes. It's as you watch TV and you see that ad, that ad that portrays that thing, and all of a sudden it's something you want, and all of a sudden it's no longer something you want. It's something you need because you can't live without it, right? What is that thing? And so we buy, and we buy, and we buy more stuff. I mean, after all, he who has the most toys. Oh, you heard that one. We buy more, and we, I mean, what's wrong with more? Can't I have a little more? And then comes the pride of life. While the other two categories are talking about the desire for things we don't have, this one is the category where we try to flaunt what we do have and what we can do. It's the trap that Nebuchadnezzar fell into in Daniel chapter 4. Let me just read it to you. This is, these are the words that came out of his mouth as he stood on his balcony looking at his kingdom. He said, 
Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power, as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Oh boy, that's pride of life. Look what I can do. And God judged him right there on the spot. Folks, that's the pride of life. This is how the world tempts us, distracts us, draws us away from the love of the Father and brings us into its snare. It's the same trap that Eve fell into in the garden. I won't read it, but in Genesis 3.16, all of those three categories are in that one verse. You can go home and read it. It's the pride of life. It's the desires of the flesh. It's the desire of the eyes, and they tempt us away from God. You know, if you just look at the landscape of our world today, you just watch TV, and you look at the magazines, and you see all these people with all of the fame and all of the money and all of the wealth and all of the prestige and all of everything with all of these toys that we really dream of having, and yet you take a survey across all of them, you know what none of them have? They're not satisfied. None of them are satisfied. They just want a little more. Just a little more. Because there's no satisfaction in any of this, is there? The only person big enough, great enough, capable enough of satisfying you and me is God. Is God. So don't let the world tempt you away from him. Do not love the world because then the love of the Father is not in us. Then John tells us in verse 17 that not only does the world not satisfy us, but the world doesn't last. Maybe you've seen the old 1980s commercial. Some of you aren't that old, so just bear with me. A few of you may know this. You remember the old Maytag repairman commercial? Some of you, you know, some of you are like, oh, I don't know what he's talking about. Maytag repair guy is sitting at his desk next to a phone waiting for the phone to ring because he's waiting to go repair a Maytag appliance. Because back then, Maytag appliances were built to last. I never had one. I don't know. That's what they say. But that was a commercial. You had the guy waiting for the phone call. Boy, they sure don't make things like they used to, do they? Do they? Because nothing lasts. You buy something today, and by, if it's not broken by tomorrow in a few days, just wait. It will get there, won't it? Because everything in this world rots and rusts and fades away. Give it time. Nothing lasts. In fact, what you, what you thought was in fashion yesterday isn't in fashion today. The words you used yesterday are no longer available to be used in that same context today. Everything changes. Everything fades away. Yet the Bible says that the only thing that lasts forever is the person who does the will of the Father. That's the only person. A one who loves God and allows the word of God to dwell in them. The person who then lets the word of God not only dwell in them, but does the word of God. That's the person. A person who loves one another as God has loved them. That's the kind of person that will last forever. Folks, this world's got nothing for you. That's going to last. God says, love me and I will satisfy and I will give you something that lasts forever. And that's what John tells us to do. Let me close with two stories, two contrasts. I could have picked anything for the first one. In fact, there's so many options that I decided to go biblical. It's safer that way. 
We're introduced to this man just once in the writings of the Apostle Paul. We've never heard him before. We've never read him before. But in Colossians, as he writes to the church there in Colossae, the Apostle Paul gets to the end of the letter and he starts to write down all of the people that have helped labor with him for the advancement of the gospel. And there at the end in chapter 4 and verse number 14, the Apostle Paul writes these words. He says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Luke, you know. Luke, you're very familiar with. But Demas, Demas, we, we don't know anything about him. This is the first time in all of Scripture that his name appears. And in fact, we don't read anything about Demas for a long time. It's like he fell off the proverbial edge of Scripture until we come to the end of Apostle Paul's life. We read it one more time in 2 Timothy chapter 4, where the Apostle Paul writes, do your best to come to me soon. He's talking to Timothy. He says, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Can you just hear the heartache, the tears as the Apostle Paul writes those words? Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. The love of the Father that may have been in him initially, he chose a different path and he went after the love of this world. And you could almost say that another one bites the dust, can't you? How sad. We never hear about Demas again. We may never hear about Demas again. Because he chose that which doesn't last. Turned his back on that which does last. As a result, you know the end of that story. In contrast to that, let me tell you about somebody more recent. A young man who played football for an obscure little known college. Tried out for the NFL, but the NFL had no use for him. So he went to Europe and played European football, and then he came back to the U.S. and played arena football. He tried out for the Green Bay Packers for a little bit, but they decided he was useless, and so they cut him too. And he went to work as a, at a grocery store making $5.50 an hour stocking shelves. But God wasn't done with this young man. In fact, God had some amazing things, some things special to do with him. In the year 2000, he led the St. Louis Rams to a Super Bowl victory. And in 2001, he was named the NFL's most valuable player. Do you know who I'm talking about? Some of you do. It's Kurt Warner. Kurt Warner. There's a picture up there on the screen, maybe. Yep, there he is. <clears throat> Kurt Warner talked about his time in Europe. In fact, he said, commenting on his time in Europe, he says, I really got to know the Lord there. Because of all the temptations that the devil threw at me in Amsterdam, drugs, women, promiscuity, they were everywhere you went. He says, the devil tried to get me to fall, but I gave my life completely to the Lord. A reporter towards the end of his career asked him this question, asked him what he wanted on his football epitaph. What did he want to be known for? You know what he said? He said, write this. He used his football platform to work for Jesus. He used his football platform to work for Jesus. That's 
what Kurt Warner wants to be known for. What about you? What about me? What do we want to be known for? Friends, God is drawing a line. And he's telling us to make a decision. Either we're going to stand for him and stand in the love of God, or we're going to reject that and stand for the love of this world. The question to you is, on which side of this line will you decide to stand? What will it be? You cannot choose both. Because the Apostle Paul says, or Apostle Paul, John says, if you are in Christ, your sins have been forgiven. You know the Father. You are an overcomer. That old life no longer defines you. I pray that you would be known as people who stand for God. People who love God. People who love one another. People who live so radically different that the world cannot do anything but look at us and say, what's different about you? I pray that the words of an old song might be true. And we're going to sing it in just a minute. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back. No turning back. Friends, maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ. I'm so thankful that you chose the second Sunday of a brand new year to be in church with all of us. Maybe you've tried it your way. Maybe you've sought the world's riches. Maybe you've longed after all the things that the world can offer, but you still are not satisfied because as we heard, nothing satisfies in this world. Friends, may I just say that the only place you're ever going to find that satisfaction is in Jesus Christ. And the Bible says, say, Lord, I am sorry. I repent of my sins and I turn to you and I accept your sacrifice. I accept what you did on the cross and I accept you as Lord and Savior of my life. And the Bible says the moment you do, you will be saved. Your sins will be forgiven. You will know Jesus Christ because he will take up residence in your heart. You will be an overcomer. Don't leave here today without knowing Jesus as your Lord and Savior. What a wonderful way to start a brand new year. But bowing your knee before the one who made it all. Friends, if you do know Jesus Christ, I am so thankful for each and every one of you. I pray that the truths of this word, that you would embrace who you are in Christ. That in that truth, you would say no to this world. And put your time and your commitment of resources to the one that really does matter. Would you stand? And let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much. Thank you for your word. <clears throat> because your promises never fail. Your word never fails. Because you never fail. You are the only constant in the life full of chaos. You're the only sure thing we can hold on to in the midst of an ever-changing world. Thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Thank you for the truth that you have shared with us today. May that truth continue to resonate in our heart, resonate in the center of our being. May we learn to love you with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, and with all of our strength. And may that define us. May we be known as children of God. Thank you for reminding us of that. May that truth continue to encourage us, empower us, and help us to stand in that victory today and every day. In 
Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.